Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, German ambassador to Ireland explains why his government did a 180 degree shift on their foreign and defence policies to help the people of Ukraine. And ahead of International Women's Day, I'll be speaking to Noreen Hegarty, who's the editor of the Sunday Times and Times Ireland, about what it's like to be the only female editor of a national newspaper in Ireland in 2022. And why is Ireland becoming more reliant on incineration? And is the booming economy responsible for our ever-increasing volume of waste? You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. But first up today, we're joined in studio by the German ambassador to Ireland, Cord Meyer-Claude. Ambassador, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on Newstalk. Thank you, Mandy, for this opportunity and greetings to all your listeners. Ambassador, we're delighted to have you as a guest on today's programme, particularly at a time of such momentous events where your country is very, very close to the centre of what's happening. And of course, we'll talk about the situation in Ukraine shortly um, and seek your views as you're in your capacity as, as uh, the German ambassador to Ireland. But first, you might share some details with us about yourself. Um, you took up the posting here in Ireland just in July of last year. Where were you before that? And how was it taking up a mission like this during a pandemic? I came straight from uh, Bucharest, so you could say from the uh, southeastern end of the European Union to the northwestern, which gives me uh, certainly a very particular perspective. And uh, in both cases, I can uh, stress right from the beginning, makes me made me aware of the importance of the smaller partners for the greater good in Europe. I'm a strong believer in having this close relationship. And uh, so I, I've come to Ireland with a feeling of uh, great opportunity and a window of opportunity. But you're right, coming at times of uh, a, a pandemic came along with uh, certain special challenges. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say even old geezers like me are now pre- pretty comfortable with Zoom and WebEx. Uh, and uh, I clearly see the advantages. You reach out to, to, to a larger audience. Uh, you can work from home, and we will certainly keep the, those benefits. Mm-hmm. But there are certain areas in diplomacy where it, it just doesn't quite do the trick. I could say the most obvious ones when, for example, during our EU Council presidency, we had to close the deal on the big uh, next generation Europe finance package to cope with uh, the pandemic. Uh, That had to be done in Brussels and in the presence of all the main uh, actors involved. And on the other end, when you when you start your job, you know, you want to bond with your partners and uh, uh, meet a first meeting, in my view, has so many collateral information that is not just not expressed in what you say. You look at the person, the behavior, the gestures, the body language, the sense of humor or lack of it, yes. whatever it is. So, of course, that was uh, a shortcoming at the beginning. I had a lucky coincidence, if I may say, helped me out a bit because um, 
also because of the pandemic, the, the long-planned state visit of federal president Steinmeier in uh, return to the visit of uh, uh, President Higgins to Germany in 2019 uh, took place last October. There was a little window of opportunity again. And of course, that uh, presented me with great opportunities uh, uh, meeting the president, meeting the fantastic staff from, from protocol, sitting next to the Taoiseach at the state banquet and so on. So it wasn't so bad. And now, definitely, uh, it has started. Uh, I, we are getting into full swing to discover the opportunities in this lovely country. And it's great that you're here with us today, face-to-face. -face. But you. um, you're a well-experienced diplomat. And as you say, those face-to-face -face encounters are so important. And... Um, the reciprocal, I suppose, visit uh, in recent weeks um, where our Taoiseach went to Germany and had an audience with uh, Chancellor Schultz. Um, one of the things that surprised me was that data protection was an issue uh, around that meeting. Why is that such a big issue for Germany in, in relation to its connections to Ireland? I would say that data protection now, uh, of course, is, is an issue for every country. And I think it was really good a good opportunity for the Taoiseach to 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 express his uh, position on that. I can't even say that we ha we, we interfered too much from a governmental point at the moment. These these data protection agencies, especially in Germany, work independently. Uh, uh, positions are made up, particularly in in the interchange between these these agencies. So so that has been done, and I think it was uh, it it highlighted the importance when the Taoiseach uh, had the opportunity in this really very political setting when he met the Chancellor. And Ambassador, um, one of your previous um, uh, positions was in London. Is that right? I, at some point, was cultural attaché in London, indeed. So you've <laughs> been watching the, the Brexit evolution, if we can yeah. call it that. Um, what's your government's position in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol? I could really uh, highlight that one of the leitmotifs of uh, my being here uh, reflects Germany's position, full solidarity to to Ireland's course and our common European course in, in implementing uh, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. You could say it falls under the realm of mitigating the negative effects of Brexit. I come back to some positive effects, which if I may later, but it needs to be stated again and again, not the protocol is the problem. Uh, the, the protocol is the solution to a problem which was caused by the Brexit itself. And I, I'm very much in agreement uh, with Ireland's general position to keep working on its implementation with a cool mind, not getting provoked by movements of, especially from London when they are hard to understand. Stay focused on the practical issues. I think that's what the EU Commission does. This big package presented by Cevcovic has just this answers to almost all the, the sort of most most relevant questions medical equipment sanitary and phytosanitary products and more importantly it has in a way uh, the the commitment you name the problem mm -hmm. and we will try to solve Find it the solution, so yeah. don't overload it with abstract aspect. and i should say that what i see as really the positive development from all i hear business circles, civil society in Northern Ireland, 
that that is exactly what they want too much about the European Court of Justice. I mean, it's important, but not in this context for them. No, of course, it provides huge opportunity for trade. And we're going to come back to that, I know, later in the interview to talk about the opportunities that Brexit does provide for us, because I know that's something that um, you feel strongly about. But obviously, solidarity, uh, you know, with a country as as important and as influential at an EU level is very important for, for, for Ireland. So I just wanted to get your views on that. Could I turn to the issue of of our time, of of what's happening in Ukraine now? The government in Germany is relatively new. Was the government, like many EU countries, surprised by the developments which took place last week and what was ordered by President Putin? I think uh, there is no denying that or uh, no beating around the bush that none of us would have imagined this development this is really leaves us all in dismay. But in the meantime, action has been taken. It has been perceived, it is now perceived as a clear turning point. The chancellor or foreign minister spoke of, in a way, you can translate it in different ways, a paradigm shift, a new era in uh, uh, the entire European peace and security order of the post-war. Ambassador, many people were actually very surprised by the swiftness of the German government to move its position on certain issues. Um, Last week, we had the development around um, the gas pipeline from Russia, Nord Stream 2, and the refusal to give the the regulatory uh, requirements around that, but also the weapons exports to crisis regions. So could you just talk to me a little bit about why you feel there was such a fundamental turnabout on significant issues like that so quickly by this government. Let's say, I think the the the, the discussion was open already. There, there was a lively discussion on that. And Germany, uh, you have to see it in the larger framework of uh, our post-war history, uh, uh, abstaining from from exporting weapons into crisis areas it, it has been a very strong belief. And I, I think it's fair to say that there was not, nothing wrong with this. Mm. Uh, it's just in light of this really completely new situation, and the chancellor said it, that uh, they came to the conclusion it, it was a bold move. I uh, I was surprised. Many, uh, I mean, even professionals were surprised. But we all feel that it is the right answer at the right time. And there are these paradigm shifts sometimes in in a special situation of crisis. It's not unusual in history. So, um, I mean, we are we are seeing Ukraine is seeing. Uh, all those dealing with Russia, uh, having dealt with Russia, are seeing the, our darkest hour in, in post-war history. I, I could, if you allow me, Mandy, to add a, a, a personal note. Uh, here I am, uh, close to the end of my career. At the very beginning, I was uh, as Deputy Consul General in St. Petersburg, dealing with Mr. Vladimir Putin as Deputy Mayor of that city. And this was right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the lifting of the Iron Curtain. And I still remember it was the perhaps the happiest hour in my entire career, experiencing what I never thought would happen, uh, an opening up of the Soviet Union, Russians interested in us. The, the government of the city, Mr. Putin, interesting in developing small business. I was in charge of business at the time. 
a totally different atmosphere. Now, as someone who has followed history closely, especially also with regard to, to Russia, I, I, I can see the missed opportunities and probably certainly the mistakes on both sides. Often it's referred to like this, but frankly speaking, at this point in time, it's irrelevant mm -hmm. because nothing, nothing can justify uh, uh, this decision, this aggression, these war crimes. So uh, I, no, no, no relativizing of, of what we see. Important to know, and that explains the necessity of that decision that you refer to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk, and I'm joined by the German ambassador to Ireland, Kurt Meyer Claude. So, somebody who's observed Vladimir Putin um, over a number of decades, where do you see this going for him? And do you think that he has made a very big miscalculation in terms of strategic and political? consequence for himself where do you see it going where do you think his end game lies uh, that i have to admit and most experts are in the same position it's very hard to predict because it, it seems uh, that the circle around him has gotten smaller and smaller and uh, we could see that in recent publication when when he even that this became public operating with his uh, close environment that I can't say, but what I could stress, and uh, it is worth uh, stressing, he may have underestimated that these actions will not divide Europe, will not divide our transatlantic partnership, uh, but rather strengthen it. Uh, in light of that aggression, Europe stands more united on, at, at, on so many fronts than before. And uh, that as such is definitely something which he must have underestimated whether what we have done in reaction has a, an immediate effect that I'm not optimistic on that, but mm. it, that it will have an effect in one way or the other uh, and has already is uh, beyond any doubt. And just picking up on that um, influence of public opinion, there are some observers who suggest that um, this swathe of public opinion all across the Western world will force a change on military intervention as we see these developments in the Ukraine increase um, and that there'll be pressure to confront Russia. Do you see that happening? If I understand you correctly, I, I, would, I would think that there will be a general rethinking of the importance of national security. And I see that in Ireland too. And Ireland comes from a position of neutrality. But uh, uh, even I heard uh, the foreign minister say it, uh, of, co they, of course Ireland is militarily neutral in present, but it's not neutral on the issue. Uh, for the first time, uh, uh, Mr. Coveney, as the foreign and defense minister, has participated in the Munich Security Conference. That was a first. Mm -hmm. And uh, I analyzed the new commission report in Ireland on how to, in light of what happened, step up uh, efforts towards uh, national security. I think we will all share that at our different levels, probably not change the DNA of what we believe in from one day to the other dramatically, but definitely moving in this direction. And Germany, I mean, almost has changed the DNA in the sense that along with these concrete measures, military help to Ukraine, has come the decision to create a special fund of 100 billion euro to reach and surpass the 2% of GDP 
for defence. Yeah, and I want to examine that area a little bit more because um, the US in particular has been urging Berlin governments to do that and increase their defence spending for some time. It's something that the SDP uh, have resisted, as did um, Angela Merkel beforehand. But that investment of 100 billion euros, where will that go? I mean, this is meant to really... uh, uh, Improve the camp- capabilities of the Bundeswehr across the entire board. Of course, it's in the air, maritime forces, land forces. I, they, I think there is a general feeling, and I'm not the expert on these these uh, issues, that many strategic areas have been neglected, and they need not not just piecemeal uh, corrections, but a, a a strong impulse to put us up to the task of of these new challenges. Yeah, and a cynic might look at this and say, you know, with your your your, your country's history and, and what we talked about earlier, that maybe this type of investment in the army and the armed forces um, has been something that the German government have wanted to do for some time and that this invasion of Ukraine affords you with the political cover to do that investment. I mean, this would really turning a, a criticism that we heard before doing it into the opposite. And I think none, none was correct. Uh, I still believe there was value, value for us to, to, to stick to a certain general approach uh, towards uh, the, these very important questions against the background of our history. We have felt and, and got broad uh, uh, approval for this that uh, in light it was expected from us uh, to do more and uh, I think there was nothing else behind it not just to respond to expectations and Chancellor, the Chancellor said it uh, Scholz uh, over the weekend but because we have come to the conclusion that we need really owe this to the security of our own country and of our allies. The other area which has seen a huge shift over the last week is the, the, the way that Germany looks at its energy. Major commitments on building LNG infrastructures. Is there a possibility that the Greens have changed their mind in relation to extending the time for nuclear plants to, to be in operation? Um, can you just talk us through some of the developments that have happened on the energy side internally in Germany? There, as far as I know, there isn't any change on, on the position on nuclear, but there is certainly enhanced activity, especially by the Vice-Chancellor uh, Habeck, who is responsible both for business relations and climate change and, and, uh, and he, new energy. Can I just ask you, he, he's a Green Minister, is that right? He's a Green Minister. And he said this week... Um, there are no taboos. Everything is up for discussion. So when it comes to energy, they really are reevaluating their their position. Uh, I would say they they are especially seeing the strategic aspect of um, uh, energy. And uh, here, by the way, uh, uh, Ireland very much comes into play for us. Why, uh, why is that, Ambassador? And and that is really part of the new opportunities. Ah. Uh, if if you ask me what is the one uh, buzzword almost in our energy talks at the moment, it's hydrogen and uh, particularly the interest in green hydrogen. We had uh, already one of our most important political um, visits last year of our commissioner for hydrogen 
and now Ireland came up with its own strategy and uh, the, your uh, minister, Eamon Ryan, is attending an energy transition summit in Berlin end of uh, March. So the development of uh, green hydrogen, which first of all must be based on development of uh, uh, renewable energy, wind, onshore, offshore, we see perhaps the most promising area to enhance our also our business relations, which are already quite satisfactory, uh, in this particular area. So this will be business relation of the future with a strategic uh, aspect at the same time. But energy is, as you said there, a, a political tool being used by a lot of people at the moment. And um, we've seen the very significant sanctions in the financial sector. Do you see a possibility of sanctions in relation to energy? I, I don't want to make any prediction here. I mean, already now, uh, the, the sanctions uh, affect uh, high technology in many areas. So I would assume it, they, they already do affect uh, energy aspects as well. Um, I would say because uh, there was the call for strongest possible uh, sanctions whatsoever, I have, I have always thought that, of course, everybody is aware and that sanctions will not just affect the opponent but will affect us ourselves. And, I mean, the sanction package taken makes this obvious. We, we will suffer and we are prepared to suffer. Yet there is still wisdom uh, in, in applying sanctions to according to the criterion they should do harm to the opponent and as as little harm to ourselves if possible. Yes. We don't avoid the harm caused on us, but it's still smart to weigh the odds. Yes. Um, from 2015 onwards, Germany, to its great credit, took in hundreds of thousands of refugees from um, the civil war in Syria, uh, despite a lot of internal criticism. Um, what's the position from the German government's uh, point of view on refugees from Ukraine? Um this is clear cut. I mean, we are open to refugees from Ukraine, as are uh, happily so many other European partners now. I mean, that is another facet that shows how, how much we are united on a question that has divided us in the past quite a bit. I think by now, uh, Germany has already uh, taken around 5,500 refugees. But I think the most interesting element in all of this is for the first time, the uh, uh, European ministers uh, will uh, activate a mechanism that uh, will uh, uh, would uh, provide protection for up to three years in all EU countries um, for refugees to be there without requesting asylum and yet get residence permit and access to social uh, systems and employment. Just one final question. What's your ambition for your mission in, in, in Ireland? I could summarize it like this. Uh, so full solidarity on the Brexit all along the way is even in our coalition paper. Uh, embrace and, uh, uh, and develop to the maximum possible the new opportunities that, that bring our countries together. This is business, but it's also, we can talk about it another time, that young people now discovering universities, and Irish people in Germany, uh, German students uh, doing the English uh, proficiency or studies here in Ireland. Across the board, countless new opportunities, our populations, the young ones discovering each other. I want to promote that uh, to the maximum. And the third one would be 
to really encourage Ireland to play its its uh, role in Europe to the maximum possible. It's such a pro-European country. It has proven that it can be a compromise builder on, on many issues. I talked about the importance of smaller partners for the greater European good uh, at the beginning of an interview. And that will be a leitmotiv for me. I see Ireland as a fantastic partner. That's why I would hope there will be more and more exchange. The Taoiseach was in Germany. Uh, we had the state visit. Uh, the finance minister was there. And, and this will hopefully be a, a dynamic follow-up. Well, Ambassador, thank you for taking the time uh, for joining us today. And we wish you very well in your endeavours uh, and every success with your mission in Ireland. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Mandy. You're welcome back to Taking Stock on News Talk. I'm joined now in studio by Noreen Hegarty, who's the editor of the Sunday Times and Times Ireland. Uh, Noreen, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Mandy. Good to be here. Now, um, Noreen, belated congratulations on your role as editor. Uh, you're a few months in now, so you've got a feel for the paper by now, I'm sure. Um, there's some people who'd refer to the newspaper industry as a sort of sunset industry. So I'm wondering why you wanted to do this. You had a very good job in Lonely Planet over there in London. Why did you want to come back to Ireland? And why did you want to get involved in the newspaper industry again? I'm, I was back in Ireland because I had come back with Lonely Planet to set up an Ireland office, um, which became our rest of the world HQ. Um, I was travelling extensively. Pre-COVID, uh, I did 58 flights in 2019. Mm. I was in the United States nine times. You do it and you don't think about it. And it, I was glad to have it and it was exciting at the time. And then COVID hit and suddenly I'm at home. And I actually quite liked it. And, mm. you know, and I wanted to get back into what I would consider sort of professional journalism or mainstream journalism, which is almost like a dirty word nowadays. You know, you know people refer to it as that. Um, not sure they wanted me to come back in. Um, so I was delighted to get this opportunity with the Sunday Times and Times Ireland. Um, Sunset Industry, yes, for print, Mandy, but not for journalism and not for, you know, um, I think certainly Sunday newspapers probably in print will stay longer. Uh, the decline is what was predicted a decade ago, which is about 7.5 eight percent per year in print um you know we both know i think it's it's older people that are buying print newspapers legitimate audience we're selling seventy thousand copies of print in the island of ireland which is you know very good i think in 2022 um but the digital opportunity is where the younger audience is at so you know for the 30 somethings the 40 somethings they're accessing their media on digital they want brands they can trust and you know that's our challenge is to make sure that we are compelling and unmissable for them yeah just looking at those circulation figures then so um in terms of is there a breakdown um, f from different sides of the border for for the sales of the we sell 10,000 in the north okay. and 60,000 um in in the republic of ireland and what are your subscriptions like and we'll talk about um you know the digital first approach later but what are digital su subscriptions like our digital subscriptions actually are strong and growing and we have an ambition within the times and uh sunday times uh with uk and ireland to get to a million subscribers by 2025 and um, the overall figure is up there ahead of 400,000 at the moment. That's for both Ireland and the UK. Um, and certainly, you know, the audience responds and you can see that response. And it's very difficult to the, or di very different, I should say, to the old days of newspaper editors where it was just the gut instinct as to what would your readers be interested in. Yes, and the editor have... decided. And now you have data to inform those decisions. And, you know, you understand the subject matter that your audience is interested in. It doesn't mean you have a template. It doesn't mean you know every time what's going to work or what isn't. But you have a good idea as to the areas that matter most to them and then our job is to creatively interpret that and deliver something that is you know worth reading and worth their time because it's a hyper competitive environment and those metrics are also very important for 
um, advertisers as well. And we, we'll look at that in a, a few moments about where that advertising is going. But I just want to pick you up on, on something you said there about the, the content and, and where it goes. I heard, and I don't know if you heard, John Withrow, um, the editor of The Times on a, a BBC4 radio interview recently. He said he was committed now to a digital first content. Is that your mantra too? Is that your practice? Absolutely. And I report to both John Withrow and to Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. Um, what and does that mean in practice? Um, in, in practice, it probably means more focus in Ireland on the Sunday Times because that is very much the jewel in our crown. But it also means that the Times Daily is, is important too. And I think a very important vehicle for explaining news, for giving expertise. And I think that's our area of opportunity. You know, we can't compete with the daily newspapers, with the Irish Times and the Irish Independent in terms of their resources in this environment, um, you know, for breaking news. And it's ubiquitous. You, you know, I don't think people necessarily remember where they heard news first anymore. That's right. Um, you know, we all try to make sure that we are competitive in that arena, um, but it's a really competitive arena. Uh, so, you know, we see an opportunity in that regard. Um, and then it's about, you know, for us um, offering something that is different in the Irish environment and then the backup of all of that fabulous content, whether it's culture, whether it's style, whether it's magazine, it's, you know, really top class coverage in relation to Ukraine and Russia currently and um, having correspondence on the ground in those territories. You know, that offers a very rich seam of journalism, um, you know, that we benefit from. And of course, our subscribers have access to all of that content, not just the Irish content. And the Sunday papers... Um, and particularly your own is very different because it reminds me of a regional paper kind of hangs around the house doesn't it for a couple of days it's not something that you you just discard because there's so much in it and you have a bit more time at the weekends people almost say it as as kind of a complaint there's so much to read in it you know and hopefully there is so much to read in it that it does keep their attention in and we have three magazines that come with the newspaper every week we have a comprehensive sports section and business and as you know you know focused on on current affairs news and politics as well Um, I hope that Sunday newspapers and weekend newspapers papers last for a very long time. I suspect they may last longer than dailies because the rhythm is different on the mm. weekend. And I think a Sunday newspaper has a job to do to kind of reflect the week that has gone and then set an agenda for the week to come. Um, you know, and in that sense, people have more time perhaps to dedicate to it, to catch up with what's happening. Stuff that you're just reading in a digital context over the course of the week, you might indulge in more, you might meet, read longer. And I think if something is really good, I mean, we ran an interview recently with Roy Keane by David Walsh um, and it was superb. And we ran the 3,000 words in print and we ran 4,500 words in digital and that's the opportunity of digital as well you can let things run not everything is that good Mm. Um, and often journalists think a lot of things are better than they are there's probably 1-3% to of your content that is that good that you could afford to give that much space to Can I just talk to you about percentage content because that's something that always intrigues me about uh, the Sunday Times Um, how much of the paper comes from the Sunday Times in London and how much of it is Irish content? And do you as editor here have the capacity to dial that up if you feel you need to? Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm very comfortable working for a newspaper organisation that is interested in profit as opposed to power. Um, and, and I'm comfortable in this environment. I don't have control to that extent. I don't have ideological control. We write our own editorials here. We decide the subject matter that is of interest to the Irish audience and they trust that I, as editor in Ireland, know what that is. Um, it, you know, Depending on how much content we take depends on what's happening. For example, last weekend, we took an extensive amount of content from Louise Callaghan, who's on the ground in Kiev, um, you know, in relation to the expertise that we can offer. You know, Pieces like Inside Putin's Mind that did really well in terms of traffic for us. So we're not going to produce content in the Irish environment that's any better than that. And I think we benefit hugely from it. Um, At other times, say in relation to the murder of Ashling uh, Murphy uh, in January, you know, 
we will obviously devote extensive space to a subject like that that you know was shocking and horrifying in this environment uh, so that is a decision that's made on a weekly basis depending on what's happening and speaking uh, as you did there about being comfortable I just wanted to ask you it's obviously part of the Rupert Murdoch News Corps group did you have any um, qualms or difficulty becoming part of the organisation given all of the revelations that have happened over the last number of years? I think for me when I'm looking at opportunities cultural fit is hugely important and I've kind of learned that the hard way that you get into the wrong environment and you just don't fit um, or it might be the right environment and you're wrong for it uh, so you know that was important to me I did feel that I, I you know was in an environment where I could make a difference, where I could add some value. Um, I'm very reassured by the fact that we're very strict in terms of accountability, very st- much stricter than other newspaper groups I've worked for in terms of transparency for expenses, transparency for the contacts that we have, for the way we do our work, for the ethics that we abide by, for the rules that we abide by, for the values that the organisation has. And perhaps as a result of all of the difficulties of the past, there's much more focus on it now. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm, I'm pleased and proud to be part of that and to ensure that those standards are enforced and and upheld. Well, speaking of the past, you have been, of course, editor before in the Sunday Tribune back in 2005 and you were there in 2011 when, sadly, a great paper ended. That experience must have been very difficult for you, but what was your biggest learning lesson from it? That you can win every award going and you can break really important stories and if you don't generate enough revenue, you're out of business. And that's why. And that's what happened. Yeah, and that's why you're saying, you know, you're glad to be in a business model that's driven by the profit and understanding that. And ultimately it is a business. I mean, I think as journalists, we're somewhat altruistic about it. And, you know, we we operate in this environment because we believe in the importance of truth in a democracy. And we, you know, we really, you know, value what we do and think that it is important um, and work hard at it and we're passionate about it. But ultimately, if you don't generate revenue, you don't get to pay salaries and you don't get to do what you want. And in newspaper businesses that are successful, there's much more scope then to do investigations, to invest in the things that you think matter. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined here in studio by Noreen Hegarty, who's the editor of the Sunday Times and the Times Ireland. And do you think journalists and and the media environment is becoming more um, aware of that? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that journalists should be. I mean, most journalists, you know, in the old days couldn't necessarily tell you what the circulation of their title was. Probably now would find it hard to tell you how many digital subscribers they have. And, you know, I think journalism should be somewhat removed from that. And I'm still a believer in the old fashioned line in the sand between the commercial and the editorial. Um, But I also think that we need to be conscious, you know, as leaders in leadership roles of, you know, of the business side of things. It doesn't mean it influences you unduly. um, But I think that you, you also have to be aware that you're doing something for a reason you're not just doing it because you as editor think it should be done you're doing it because the audience responds to that and the way they respond to that is they purchase your product Now you're also a digital editor um, at INM uh, during a time of great change and transition but what has struck you 10 years after you were editor before if you like coming back what is the biggest change that you see? Um, 10 years ago nobody wanted to change I mean you know everybody thought everybody else should change which is really easy you know I think you know you, you could do with a bit of a change Mandy but I'm good um, and that was very difficult and I found that role um, as editor of INM uh, independent.ie as a really challenging role and quite honestly I stayed 18 months I should have left after three it, it just wasn't going to work mm. and it didn't work um, and I think coming back 10 years later I would say that the big difference is that audience matters and that old bombastic approach that editors often had which was very often modelled on Kelvin McKenzie of the sun in that era in the 1980s um, you know of kind of you know roaring shouting you know being very um, difficult um, you know 
picking people out. I mean, a very bullying environment, if I'm honest. Um, I think that's all gone. And I think we're much closer to our audiences now, much closer to the readers. In the old days, it was very difficult for a reader to get attention um, unless really they kind of were at the point of taking a legal action. Nobody would ever admit that they were wrong because obviously, you know, the, the penalty for being wrong is, and, and still is, despite reforms, uh, pretty enormous. Um, but I think now we're much closer to our audiences in the digital context. Readers can comment at any point in time. Um, and we do listen to them and we do look and see what they're interested in. And I think access, um, you know, in a digital era is, is sometimes too much. I mean, sometimes you're never switched off. You're always on. Um, but I think that uh, that's much better and it keeps us honest. It keeps us transparent. Um, and I hope from a reader's point of view, um, it's more authentic and they get to, you know, really believe and trust the journalists that they follow and that, and that they read. So talking about the environment that the media operate in and the culture um, around media operations in Ireland, um, I was doing the numbers today and I think I'm right in um, saying that there have been five female editors of print press in Ireland. Um, Geraldine Kennedy, Claire Grady, Anne Harris, and you've been two of them. Um, So very often the media are um, the ones to kind of hold a, a mirror up to the political system or business and say, well, actually, you should be doing more in terms of gender quotas. But what more could be done in, in this industry to promote the, the interests of women? And do you think that there is a more positive environment for women in the media and that they have questions to answer? Um, there's also Demelza de Burka and Susan Daly in digital. Um, digital, so, yeah, but yeah, but I'm no, just, it's still yeah. it's still not a, it's new, it's not a proud record of women in leadership roles in media. And I think you know our industry has been. We've been dinosaurs, really. I mean, I, when I started working, for example, with Lonely Planet, I was more on the business side of things. And I'm dealing with KPMG or dealing with law firms in Dublin. And you see the policies they have and the programmes they have and the positive approach they have to, you know, helping women to develop their talents, helping women to develop their confidence. You know, and we've never had that in the media industry. And is there a bit um, more of that now? Are you seeing more? Is it good... Um, I think you're. I think certainly women are seeing more women in leadership, and you know the old saying: if you don't see it, you can't be it. I think that is important. I would say in my own personal experience, it's been more being told I couldn't do it or I shouldn't do it that, that kind of spurred me on. Mm. It's like, you know, well, you think I can't do it, lads? Watch, mm. you know. And and there was that kind of, I suppose, the culture was not in my favour, um, you know, and, and I was very naive about it for a very long time. I mean, I genuinely thought talent outs. And once you're good enough at what you do, that's all you've got to focus on. And you don't. You've got to be political. You've got to socialise your ideas. You've got to get people on side. And at one stage in my career, I looked around and I had nobody in my corner. So I changed my approach quite radically after that and ensured that I did have allies and I did have people who understood what I was trying to achieve. And um, I remember an editor saying to me once, like, you're, you're, you're down the road and you're in the field and you're over the gate and we're still back up there, you know. Mm. Um, to bring people with you is really important. Otherwise, you don't get things done. So it's no good to think that you are talented enough in your own right. You've got to work with people and it's got to be a collaboration. And I think that's also a point of difference between sort of some of the men I worked with. And I worked with great men all my career, mostly men, to be honest. But And, and the women I worked with, we, we kind of stuck together and we supported each other, I'd, I'd like to think. Um, but I didn't ever respond well to going to combat when going into work. And I had to learn that that didn't bother a lot of the men. They could actually have World War Three almost in the newsroom, very aggressive environments always, um, and they could be roaring and shouting, but then they would just either go for a pint or the next day it would be normal. And the next day I'd still be kind of full of resentment for something mm. I thought was unfair. And I had to get over that and just become professional about it and leave it behind and, you know, allow that, learn from that, I guess, you know. And Noreen, because of your experience and everything you've seen, what are your views on gender quotas? Do you, or has that changed? 
I'm very supportive of gender quotas because and I was think that, were you always supportive of I it? was yeah. yeah yeah I think change has to be radical I mean if you want results you're going to have to do something different and this notion that you know women can do it on their own and you know yeah we can but you know it's hard you know I, my daughters often look at me and go not sure I want to work as hard as you did mum now I'm very driven and I'm very passionate about what I do and I love what I do you know and I I remember Caroline Walsh uh, in RTE once saying you can have two out of three as a woman you can have a career hobby and children pick your two Mm. and I have children and a career and I never really had a hobby because there was never time Mm. Um, you know I couldn't go and golf I couldn't take that time at weekends or whatever else so I do think that, that we need to help women more I think we need younger women need to see role models need to understand and need to learn I mean you know I didn't start off like this I've learned a lot along the way and I hope I'm still learning and you know I hope I'll continue to learn because otherwise what would be the point um, but I do think that we need to do a lot more um, in that regard and I think if we take our eye off the ball I mean we had a situation where we had more women in leadership now we've gone back a bit you know we need to dial it up again and and also I think it's really important that when we do that you know and it's the same for all minorities not just for women um, you know we need diversity right across the board in terms of what we do because that's the audience that we're trying to appeal to um, but we don't dumb things down we keep our standards high we keep a level of excellence but we help people to get to that level of excellence So next week we're going to see International Women's Day does that mean anything to you personally? It's funny it never did and you know earlier in my career I probably would have gone so you know um, I think you're in a leadership role Yeah I think as I've got older maybe and I you know I'm in leadership roles I do see that it's important and I do see that it's an opportunity to refocus on things you know accepting that it it means nothing would be almost like saying everything's grand Mm. everything's fine and everything's not fine and and we do have to do a lot more to create you know a more equal environment and I think that also comes back to you know very often you'll hear younger women go into a profession and they feel like they're on the same even playing pitch as as their male colleagues and there is no difference between them and then they have children and everything changes and I think we need to do an awful lot more in terms of we've always focused on rearing our girls and making sure that they're educated and that they see they're equal well we need to rear our boys to play an equal part in the home Mm. and I think when men are you know playing an equal part or any partner you know regardless of gender is playing an equal part for example in rearing children um, then they can play an equal part in the workplace as well and it isn't such a big deal and I think you know very often there is still that unfortunately old-fashioned view of women are the people who look after the home and men are the people who look after the world. Can I just ask you a final question? Are you enjoying the job and what are your ambitions for for the paper? Yeah, no, I love the job. I love the opportunity that I've got. I think it's a fabulous brand. I think we've got some great journalists. Um, my ambitions are to be excellent. My ambitions are to create an environment where, you know, we're really good, where people are passionate about what they do, where everybody brings up their game. You know, I mean, the best scenario for me is I'm surrounded by fantastic journalists who all reflect really well on me and make my job really easy. Um, so, you know, I think there is an opportunity for that in the Sunday Times. I think the brand has trust. It has credibility. Um, you know, and we just want to make sure now that it is um, compelling, it's unmissable and it's legitimate for a younger audience because if our audience is all over 50 and buy in print, that isn't a future plan and we want to make sure that we satisfy that print audience and continue doing good journalism but that we're also relevant to a younger audience um, and a more diverse audience um, who want to know what's happening and trust the news that they're getting. Well, I'm very excited to see what you're going to do in the coming years. I'm sure you'll be very successful as you have been in your previous roles. Noreen, thanks very much for coming into the studio today. Thank you, Mandy.
You're welcome back to Taking Stock on News Talk. I'm joined now by Kevin O'Sullivan, who's the Environment and Science Editor for the Irish Time, to discuss the thorny issue of Ireland's waste. Kevin, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on Taking Stock today. Thank you, Mandy. Kevin, can we start by looking at the national perspective on waste? How do we fare against our European neighbours? Is there a sort of a league table and where do we fit on it? Uh, I'd say overall, we have a, a very mixed bag. Um, we, ha- we have good, strong recycling in many respects, especially through industry and, and commercial commercial supply lines. But uh, we, we, we have old problems that we're not fully addressing yet. And uh, we have a new scenario in recent years where increasingly our waste is going to incineration. And this, uh, this unfortunately then has an obvious knock-on impact on, on recycling particularly recycling of of, uh, packaging and of plastics. The trouble is incinerators, and in in Ireland, by far the largest one is the Covanta plant in Ringsend in Dublin. They're kind of like ferocious animals. They need to be fed, and uh, so they they need huge waste volumes. And as a consequence, then, it it has a, a slightly distorting effect on the on on other aspects of the waste market and unfortunately it means that uh, for example in 2019 46% of waste went to incineration now in some cases that that is used to generate energy but not in enough in enough scenarios so it's not the best use of waste added to that we're moving to a scenario where the demands of operating in a circular economy while also addressing plastic pollution and addressing the climate crisis mean that we have to recycle way more. So unfortunately, our recycling rates in some respects are not going well. That said, I would say infrastructure is improving all the time. We've got away from from landfill. We we had a huge problem with landfill for many years and, and that's improving. Uh, we are recycling through well through rate repack and improving rates there, but despite that, there's some areas where there are problems. In addition, household recycling has improved because we have much better segregation. We also have we're we're not exporting as much waste as we used to, especially plastics. We're building up infrastructure to recycle plastics, including plastic bottles. So that's that's the good side of it. But I'm afraid. Uh, there's new new targets coming into place up to 2030 and they're going to be extremely demanding. On top of that, there'll be financial penalties under the circular economy. Again, everyone will have to adjust, not, biz- not just business, householders as well. Can I just go back to that issue that you mentioned um, a moment ago about the recycling? Um, I thought a couple of years ago yeah. that Ireland was doing quite well in this regard as consumers. We seem to embrace, embrace the, the culture of green, brown bins. There was lots of new bring centres all over the country. But our ambition to reduce, reuse and recycle, has that dissipated? Is that what you're saying? It, it, we have gone backwards? No, I, no, I wouldn't say it has dissipated. Uh, I just think it's not at the right level yet. And I think you're right. Like for you, if you look at how we responded to plastic, uh, plastic bags, you know, small plastic bags, and the levy, you know, we we adjusted very quickly, and and we do we are a very environmentally conscious nature, nation, I think, mm. and and that goes right down to individual householders. But overall, we're not coordinated enough. We don't have the right infrastructure yet, but that's kind of impairing our, our performance, which is probably about mid table, I would think. In, in, in the EU sense. Equally, 
we have a good way of of recording our wave streams, which is really good and it's better than most. So I think you know that we're not sort of hiding it under the table or anything like that. It's just that we need the key infrastructure and we need need behavioral change as well in in, in the sense of accepting that you know we that we cannot generate waste, particularly food waste, to the level that we're doing at the moment. Yeah, and that food waste is is increasing a lot, isn't it? I'm I'm looking at a report from the EPA recently and I think it said that food waste was um, responsible for about 10% of all of the human-induced carbon emissions. Uh, is it we're just still buying too much and wasting too much food in Ireland? Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty staggering. And um, it, it's, it's yeah, it's that sort of lack of thought and lack of, you know, eating food uh, in terms of, of, of order and time and, um, and just being a bit careless just in terms of volume. Uh, and it, it is... Like it's a staggering amount of of, uh, of of food that we are wasting. It's probably in the order of 1.1 million tons, according to the EPA. And um, it's actually a really good thing to address the issue because it will reduce emissions as well and also save households a lot of money. Like currently it's estimated that we are wasting in the order of 700 euro a year per household. So it's 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 no brainer in the sense of it changing our behavior, and there are very ambitious targets in place now to have the amount of food waste we're generating by twenty thirty. So I think that's a really good target to aim for, and I think it's something that where an individual can make a big impact by changing their behavior, and and they're up for it. They know that it's it's not the best thing, and it, they've been helped now by by that but that better sort of segregation options in terms of how they deal with their waste in the home and, and also then the brown waste that, that that has been recycled in a better way. One of the other way, um, sorry, figures that, that struck me from that EPA report was also packaging. That was also up quite considerably even before the pandemic. So one can only imagine that that's also increased. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, there was a report out in Britain saying that people, especially purchases of fast fashion, are really conscious now of the packaging that that comes in when they buy online and that if they find there's a lot of uh, waste excess package and and plastic associated with they're less inclined to buy the product so again i think this is going to sort of change the focus and it has been quite staggering for people purchasing during the pandemic just to see the sheer volume of of waste um, associated with products that are delivered to your door. I think, you know, that's just not going to be sustainable in the future. And I think the demands of the circular economy will force producers and suppliers to change their approach. And I I think that's a very good thing. Kevin, what role does economic growth play in the increasing volumes of our waste? Well, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's the clear... Uh, association with volume, rising volumes is tied into sustainable, well, it's tied into sustained economic growth, which we've experienced over the last few years. So, for example, the increased incineration uh, has, is sort of interlinked with, with, with strong economic growth, and we have to break that link. And likewise, in terms of plastics, plastic use, single plastic use, uh, up to fairly recently has been coincided with, with more activity in the economy. So it's 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 one area that really needs to 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 change, and I think it will happen. But it's a question of whether it will happen soon enough, because um, the demands of the circular economy are going to be really hard on everyone in terms of 
of their their behavior and in terms of of how how businesses operate and there will be this effect known as eco-modulation so that if you're engaging in what what's classified as polluting behavior you're going to pay more and, and and that's going to try and push people in the right direction it's going to force businesses to redesign their products and i think that is a good thing now in the government are bringing in some legislation to deal with those issues around the circular economy um uh, later this year can i just go back to the figure you mentioned about incineration earlier uh, 46% of ireland's waste going to incineration and you also mentioned that we needed to to revisit the infrastructure piece in terms of dealing with our waste. Can you just talk us through what the national objective is there um, and were there targets set for incineration? Have we met them? Well, unfortunately, the, 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 the targets that we have, we, ha- we, we haven't met a lot of them. And the trouble is then the, the incineration sort of overrides a lot of that. Um, now, the scale of incineration growth is reflected in the fact that in 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 2009 we we only incinerated four percent of our waste and then as i was saying in 2019 it was 46 percent so that that shows you how it sort of forced itself onto the onto the waste agenda uh, i think the key thing now and it's already happening is the infrastructure and the sorting uh, the sorting ability is improving uh, and it'll take time to get fully up to scale but for example we're building two plastic recycling plants in the country and uh, they're going to one of them is going to uh, recycle possibly in the order of 1 billion plastic PET bottles every year so that's a really big change in the market and it's necessary uh, there was some minor plastic bottle recycling, but but a lot of the time that that plastic stream went abroad. So you know we have to be able to deal with the waste uh, on our own doorstep and do, and do it properly. And I think the industry is aware of that the waste industry industry is aware of that, and it is moving in that direction. But I have to say that when you look at how ambitious some of the targets, particularly on on recycling plastics, are it's going to be a very big jump uh, that they're going to have to make in the next 10 years. And there are targets already in place for 2025, aren't there? Will we, do we have any notion whether or not we'll, we'll be near those targets? Um, well, the EPA in some of its recent reports has been sort of flagging that, that the, they're sort of saying that, that we're going in the wrong direction. Now, there has been a change in how you classify waste, which kind of makes Ireland look a little bit worse than it probably is. But I think, you know, every change, every at every level in society is going to have to be changed if those targets, particularly on, on plastics, are going to be met. I think it, it's it's uh, there's a good chance we can do it. I think people are up for it. Mm. They're up for, uh, you know, being a bit more environmentally conscious. They really want to address the climate crisis. This all fits in with the message. Uh, so I think. I think there's a reasonable chance we'll get it if there's if there's buy-in across all sectors. Of course, the other big thing that will happen this year is there will be a deposit and return scheme introduced in Ireland for the first time in many, many years. And that, that means that um, plastic bottles uh, and aluminium cans will be recycled. There will be a levy on them, a small levy. And then when they're returned, for example, to a supermarket, you, you, will, you will be refunded a small amount of money. But um, many have argued that this is a measure that we've needed for a long time. Others within the waste industry say it's not 
it's, it's going to be costly and it's not necessary, but I think it's a really important message. Yeah, and, and, and these things are often about more than the financial return. It's about developing habits, educating people and, and trying to get people into that mindset, which we may have lost a little bit in the pandemic, that this is in our interest and it's going to contribute to moving towards a lower carbon society. So are there any other initiatives that you can think of along those lines that might affect our own personal behaviour that are coming down the tracks? Well, I think uh, there's a lot that's coming. And if you look at the Climate Action Plan, there's there's hundreds of measures that will come there. Um, I, th- I think the, the introduction of a carbon budget will actually impose mm-hmm. a lot of discipline on people on different sectors. They'll have no choice to but to reduce the carbon in their manufacturing or in their activities. Uh, so it'll have a far-reaching effect across all the economy and across society. And I think it's the combination of all those that, that will signal a big change in lifestyle um, that's coming down tracks and unfortunately um, the, the climate crisis is worsening and you know related to that is the biodiversity crisis and the, and, and the associated pollution crisis that some of which is coming from waste issues so all of that is more and more pressing uh, but people recognize that and hopefully they'll they'll be on board to to make their contribution to to addressing the, the interlinked crises. Kevin, you've been following this and, and writing about it for a, a number of years. Um, and waste management for our society is such a fundamental part of our efforts to reduce our emissions and become a lower carbon society. Do you think that maybe the focus that has shifted over the last number of years to the international climate debate, even on energy topics, have maybe taken us away from those personal behavioural issues that we focused on a number of years ago when we had all the discussions about the green bins and changing our habits? Yeah, I, I think that it can dominate the discussion and, uh, you know, it can can change public mood as well in the sense that people sometimes feel, um, you know, that they can do nothing about it. But I would argue that there are individual actions that can have a meaningful impact without blaming the individual or the mm-hmm. householder. Um, and I think increasingly people are up for that and, and, and are pursuing these type of actions. And they can be very basic things like picking up litter around your, your place of, of work or walking or, or in the immediate vicinity of your house or getting that extra sorting bin for, for batteries or, or, or whatever, or, or uh, creating a space in your local house or garden for for biodiversity and for pollinators they're they're as basic as that but collectively they add up to something really significant and i think increasingly irish people are on board for that and despite all the sort of big global issues and Mm -hmm. the worry and concern about energy and and um electricity prices and and gas they, they 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 still see the need to to make their contribution and and are very willing to do so. So back to basics and a little more um, focus, I suppose, on personal responsibility wouldn't go amiss. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. They're fascinating insights um, on this subject. That's Kevin O'Sullivan, Environment and Science Editor with the Irish Times. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome.
That's Kevin O'Sullivan from the Irish Times. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope that you found today's topics interesting and maybe even informative. We'd love to hear your suggestions on topics from around the world that you might like to hear about. So all suggestions, welcome to takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. And there's extended interviews with today's guests as we have a bit more time in the podcast. My thanks to today's guests for taking the time to join with us and to producer Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.